Welcome to Shaken and Disturbed, our usual wave hello for our patrons out there who can see us with our jazz hands. And Hi, John's everyone. in his pride shirt, which I'm is I'm in really my amazing. pride shirt. My, I love I got it. my pride watch band on. I'm just, oh I'm God, signaling. I'm signaling to the world that there is a homosexual amongst us, is what I'm yes, trying to say. Yes, we just, it's not me. I just want everyone to know it's not me. No, That's Darren offensive. is not. Well, actually, Darren, we just announced on um, Patreon that you're, that everyone, you know, our children who are, are big fans of the show, um, that their father, you, is a lesbian. So Right, but but being lesbian isn't being gay. You know what I mean? That's true. That's it's true. It's not more really on that. being homosexual. More on that later. That. Uh, <laughs> the listener shout-out section, yes. I'm Darren Carpey with John Thrasher, and we're excited to kind of get into oh this case here today. It's, I feel like it's a true... Wait. It does feel like this should be set at Halloween, but we're we're not, apparently. We're just we're giving it right into the summer solstice. Mm-hmm. That's what we're That's doing. True. Summer solstice drop. I have two things, though, before we get into this. Okay. Number one, for those of you watching on Patreon, if you're a sussy radish, I have an itchy nose today. Okay. So from time to time, I may do this. That's what, that's the content they pay for. That's right. I may do this. I might, get, like, smash my nose, but I've got an itchy nose. I am not picking my nose on camera. Sure. But I am itching around it to keep it clean and... um Safe for work, frankly, including right now. And pristine. Pristine. That's Um, number one. Yes. Number two, Darren, there's breaking sad news. I am out of Diet Coke. Oh, God. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to go to Walmart after this. I got to get tie dye stuff after this for reasons we'll talk about another time. And I don't know if I want to do all of that. You know what I mean? Really? When I moved to LA, I really feel like. I'm going to relate more to other people who are like, got to get in the car and go do my errands. Oh, you're going to totally. Because like, I definitely. don't do that. I have all my errands delivered to me. I know. I sh- I do have, I've talked about this before, that Walmart plus, by the way, I don't, I don't live near a Target. So Walmart's just easier for anyone who's listening. I hate that we're, you know, listen, I get the corporate, I, I shop local. Trust me. Some things you can only really get at Walmart. I have the Walmart plus app where you, I accidentally paid a hundred dollars and get free delivery. So I really should be doing that. But instead, Darren, we are here on the show. I haven't been able to pick out my what groceries. Are you what are you drinking? This I'm drinking my last Diet Coke. This is literally the last uh, one. This is it. Yeah, this I, is I, I last better, hurrah. I better take a good sip and make sure it really like tastes good, right? I love having a Diet Coke on it. But a can of Diet Coke, I've said this before, oh especially a nice God. cold one. It just, A, it's so good. It's not as good as a fountain, but it's the second best choice. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It just makes me burp. And then I'll be in the middle of recording and I'll be like, <laughs> That's true. I, I know I can't what, what people don't know is I have a mute button on my board so whenever I'm like getting that's a little true. you know burpy, I've got my Gatorade, Gatorade zero. zero that's much healthier Gatorade than what zero, I'm baby. drinking I'm sure well Darren let's get into this week's episode we've got a lot to get into this case is particularly interesting it's connected okay. to a lot of things that we're connected to actually including Pennsylvania and New York City so let's get into it okay in 1973, Darren, you probably remember the movie The Exorcist. Of course. You've seen it? Of course. Uh, yes, I think of course. I've seen it. I feel like I know it. I don't know if I've actually ever sat down and watched it, though. It's terrifying, and I think in 1973 it was terrifying, but it's not yeah. the scariest movie I've ever seen. 
What's that for you? Do you know what your scariest movie you've ever I think seen? The is? movie that scared me like the bejesus out of me the most, the ones that I think about, like Paranormal Activity in the theaters, Ugh. really freaked me out. The first one, I, didn't I see could any of the never, ones. I could never see that in theaters. The Strangers. <clears throat> think i've seen that with Liv tyler and then the ring when it first came out the like, ring. really haunted me what about blair witch project did you I watch never that? saw it but you know what Ugh, you know what seeing out. seeing clips later and i knew that thing was crazy yeah i would oh uh, when i saw the trailer for it yeah i remember feeling nauseous because of the way that they film it because oh, they're okay. always like yep. moving handy cam whatever yeah, yeah. but it does give me a little paranormal activity where it's like yeah. oh this feels like it's being filmed in real life so i know it's been i know it's been out forever and by the way this is connected to this week's case so so bear with us but um the thing that freaked me out did you ever see the blair witch project i forget no. what you just said okay no i won't spoil it then it's been out forever what's to spoil i know but the very and everyone who knows who has ever seen it will know what i'm talking about i was fine for most of that movie it was a little freaky but the very last scene and that movie stuck with me forever. I still think about it from time to time. It was creepy as hell. And I'll tell oh. you about it, Darren, after the show. Okay, yeah. Tell me about it. That actually, if we're thinking about scary movies, that yeah, like, yeah. if I want to be scared or I'm thinking about something that freaks me out, the movie Carrie. Really, Carrie's a good one. Really terrified me with the you mother. Yeah. And the it's last the thing I'll say. Thing, I just can't. When I'm, the thing that might scare me the most is the news. You know what I mean? Like the news is just terrifying these days. Well, I just don't watch it. I yeah, that's right. You just yeah. shouldn't watch it. There you go. Anyway, as I said, 1973, The Exorcist hit theaters, horrified audiences everywhere, but patrons lined up around the block to see what was said to be the scariest movie ever made, like Darren was just saying, for the time. The supernatural horror would forever raise the bar for the genre, which we just kind of walked through a little bit as well. But while audiences were captivated by t the terrifying tale of possession and demons, the true horror story was yet to unfold because unbeknownst to the cast and crew, they had been working alongside an alleged serial killer, a man named Paul Bateson, who by his arrest would have claimed the lives of as many as seven young queer men in New York City. Mm. Paul Bateson was born on August 24th, 1940 in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which I'm mm. sure is somewhere I've been to because you, I've been all over Pennsylvania. I feel like you have too, Darren, actually. I went to school in Pennsylvania, yeah. but like middle of Pennsylvania is like Alabama. Like I, I avoid <laughs> You're that. You're like, where's, what are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, Paul's father was a man of science specializing in metallurgy, which is an interesting uh, uh, topic to go into. Growing up, Paul recalled wanting to go to see movies at their local theater, but his father thought of them as silly and would force him to stay home and read or listen to classical music on the radio instead. I think we've all learned at this point that the more you stifle a child's interest, the more they're going to rebel. I don't know. That might just be me. Not That's certainly not scientifically proven, but well, you know. it's, it's just funny because like people who are trying to like ban books now, I'm yeah, like, like, what? I'm like, I'm like the internet exists. <laughs> I was in the middle stupid, of a but I'm like, but I was like, yeah. but like, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, you can't read that. I'm like, it's but, like the Barbara Streisand effect. It's like, then people are going to want to read it more. Like, it's very old school, isn't it? I get not wanting your kid to read certain stuff. That's fine. But why can't my kid read certain things? Yeah. It's just, it'd be, wow. It's very backwards. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, he would later say that his interest in film and his appearance in The Exorcist was his own way of seeking, seeking revenge 
on his strict father for trying to force his ideals and passions onto him while rejecting his son's interests, which is basically what Darren and I have just highlighted. Yeah. In his 20s, Paul would enlist in the army, which would prove to be a short-lived career when he developed a drinking problem Mm. while being stationed in Germany. He was ultimately charged for his alcoholism, and after leaving the military, Paul returned home to Pennsylvania where he started his life as a new sober man. Well, okay. That's pretty amazing that he got just... No, yeah, run of the mill, but... It's actually usually like when you, you know, come well, back true. from the war, yeah, I then... feel like your alcoholism would be even worse. Uh, right. And he's kind of, he you now is a sober man. In 1964, he decided to leave home again and move to the East Village in New York City, just a few blocks south of me right That's now, right. where I currently reside. Paul had come to terms with the fact that he was gay as a teenager, but did it relentlessly, but hid it, excuse me, hid mm-hmm. it relentlessly from his family, obviously out of fear of rejection. 1964, I mean- Talk about a very scary time up until even maybe five years ago. And in a lot of places, it's still scary. But up until five years ago, I feel like it was like, there's a lot of hesitancy about being gay. Yeah. And obviously moving to New York City would allow him to openly be himself and begin getting involved with the local queer community. That's what's great about New York City. Yeah, New York City and San Francisco at this time in particular were sort of like the cultural hubs for gay people and queer people specifically it is um, the melting pot of everyone. And we all yeah. just accepted everyone. Yeah, and that's, exactly. that's really what it was. And he started a relationship with a local musician and the two were known to throw lavish parties for their friends at their homes and plan weekend getaways in cherry, cherry grove, grove Darren, and tell cherry everybody Gro- about cherry grove hilariously enough. I don't know when this shift happened. <laughs> I do know gay men that go to cherry grove, but cherry grove is like the lesbian fire Island. That's right. Fire Island pines is for gay men. Cherry Grove is for lesbians. And they're in Long Island. They're little beach yes. communities, just about what, a couple hours from the city. And even to this day, I mean, Darren I'm and I know, away. yeah, Darren and I know many people that still vacation, um, you know, out in these little areas throughout the and summer. It's, it's not strict, but certainly like over, over, I would say August, like height of summer, like Fire Island yeah. Pines is like, yeah. I want to say like, 98% gay men <laughs> yes. and Cherry Grove is like, that's where lesbians go. But there are gay men who are like, I kind of older, want to settle down. They're not, yeah, they're not true. party animals. Like Fire Island Pines is very like party, party, party heavy. Right. To me. Also, there was a really funny SNL sketch about Cherry Grove. Um, so if you want to look that up and get a little more understanding yes. of, of what Cherry and the stereotypes around Cherry Grove. But anyway, Darren, yes. keep going here. Well, Paul's sobriety ended as he began surrounding himself in the party scene of New York and frequenting the local gay bars. It's probably very hard to be sober in this time. During the day, he began studying at NYU Medical Center to be a neurological radiological technician, which is really cool. He managed to keep his drinking under control as he worked his way through medical school and would quickly earn the respect of his colleagues in his field. High performer. Yeah, Yeah, really high performer. I've talked about this before. I never know how musicians can like perform drunk, let alone pass med school sober, let alone drunk. So obviously he's a high performer, high functioning alcoholic. His undeniable knack for the profession is what eventually landed landed him his role in the exorcist. Yeah, now in this 19- connecting as I'm, as I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously like you needed, you know, in the exorcist, they're taken over by some That's spirit right. and demon and stuff. So neuro neurological things probably would, 
uh, you know, plan to come into play here. And in 1972, the director of the film, <coughs> William Feitkin, 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 was preparing for filming and contacted the NYU Medical Center to request that he be allowed to oversee some medical procedures he would be recreating in the film, as well as looking for hospital staff who would be willing to be extras in the film. You know, we wanted it to be kind of as natural as possible, as yeah. normal as possible. William was invited to visit the medical center to witness a cerebral angiography, which is a procedure in which a catheter is inserted into the artery of the patient through the front of the neck. Oh, boy. Okay. And the head of the institute, Dr. Barton Lane, suggested that Paul Bateson himself perform the procedure. This approach to a cerebral angiography is very different today, but at the time it was a rather bloody operation. You know, it is much easier to insert a catheter in other ways. You know, they can mm. do things laparoscopically. They can do right. things all sorts of ways. But, but back then, you know, tech was technology and science was what it was. Paul, yeah. along with a nurse, handled it with skill and efficiency as William watched from the observation room. So this is William coming to the NYU Medical Center to see how it unfolds first this isn't Paul on the set yet. I just want to make it's sure we're clear about that. Even weird to think about having an observation room. Yeah, I know. And I know like other medical students obviously get to go, but like outsiders, like it doesn't well, this really was... exist anymore. This is a Seinfeld episode where George <laughs> and Kramer go, I mean, sorry, uh, Jerry and Kramer go visit and Kramer's eating junior mints and he drops one into like the stomach cavity this. of one of the patients. Yeah, this is pre-HIPAA. You know what I mean? Like, yes. you know, people can't just kind of meander in and- no. buy a ticket for this stuff these days. Right, exactly. But, but William was so impressed with Paul's work in bedside manner that he decided to cast him as the main doctor in the infamous hospital scene. So for those of you who may have seen the movie or know it really well, you can maybe have a point of reference there. In the film, Paul is first seen wheeling the main character, Reagan, played by Linda Blair. Or is it Regan? Regan. 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 Sorry about that. Yeah. Into the hospital room where she then inspects her for the cause of her mysterious ailments before uh, taking over the scene as the primary doctor performing the cerebral angiography, one of the bloodiest scenes in the movie. Yes. Now, by the time the film premiered, however, Paul's life had basically spiraled significantly. Shortly after his relationship ended, his mother died of a stroke. Oh. The heavy loss took a toll on the Bateson family, which proved too much for Paul's brother to handle. And after years of struggling with his mental health, tragically, Paul's younger brother committed suicide. Oh, that's sad. Uh, yeah, and he was away from home alone, and his only surviving family was his father, with whom he had always struggled to connect with. Paul, as you might imagine, relapsed, began drinking again, and his alcoholism steadily became more severe over time, resulting in him losing his job at the medical center. I mean. You know, listen, we're going to get into other details, but, it, you know, you do feel for somebody who's gone through this much life. You know what I mean? Even the military stuff. And, and, and so yeah. much loss. You know, that's yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. And after being let go, Paul would support himself through odd jobs around the city, such as cleaning, repairs, and at one point working at the box office of a pornography theater, which, by the Ooh. way, were... Very rampant in New York City back in those days. Yes. According to Paul, he was drinking approximately one liter of vodka every day. Wow. Now that that's a little bit less than what Darren drinks, but it's still a lot nonetheless. Could you imagine um, though? Like I know it's a lot. This is one liter of water right here. Yeah, Darren's showing on the on the Patreon video. A vodka, this that's much vodka. That's every day. Your liver is just gonna yeah. crumble. There were days where he would be too intoxicated to even leave his apartment, but when he had the energy, he would go out, and he started to become a regular at the local leather bars, such as Mineshaft, 
and the anvil where oh, he yeah. would show up already intoxicated partying until the early hours of the morning and often leaving with a man that he met there. And it was around this time that the news began to spread about what they were then calling the quote bag murders, which we're about right. to get into. And, you know, anyone who knows New York, if you think of, you know, bags, you're going to think of kind of this next uh, part of the story here. Between 1975 and 1977, several trash cans would be found floating in the Hudson River. And inside those waste bins, police would discover six different bodies of young men who had been stabbed and dismembered. Most of the identifiable parts of them had been obviously purposely removed. If you're going to go through that much trouble to kind of chop them up, you're probably going to go through this much trouble to remove any identifiers. But their heads, their fingers, virtually no blood remained in their bodies. So clearly they were kind of drained out. Something a doctor would clearly know how to do. I mean, we could figure it out, but certainly, Mm -hmm. you know. An embalming stage, if you will, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And with little to go on, police had no choice but to begin their investigation based on what they were able to retrieve. The trash bags and all of the bins were meant for biohazardous material, often used in hospitals. Red flag. Um, Easy to figure that out probably at this point, right? Well, several. Yeah, I would imagine. Unless, you know. Yeah, you could just automatically assume it's somebody who works in the hospital, but it could be yeah. a janitor, well, that's could be true. a cafeteria yeah. worker, could be a, a friend of a friend of somebody that works there. Yeah, right, exactly. Several of the men were found wearing various <laughs> leather garments, all of which were traced back to a leather shop in East Village that catered especially to the local gay community. Unfortunately, none of the victims were ever successfully identified, mm. which is really horrible. The community was outraged and rightfully fearful as they felt the police were quick to dismiss the crime. Once it was determined, the victims were all gay. We kind of see this even nowadays, you know, especially with socioeconomic status and certainly with sexuality. uh, You know, some lives matter more than others in in the heart of the criminal justice system and police, unfortunately. Now, it was common for flagrant homophobia to halt investigations into crimes involving gay men, as police would often dismiss them as sexual encounters gone wrong. And I think it was really easy, especially when they didn't know that much about uh, the gay community to just think like, oh, men are tussling, men are getting into this. And like, right. you know, they tried to have sex and boom, you know, whatever, like men were seen, you know, men still are yeah. seen as very tough and gruff. And so it's, it's, when I say it's easy to think that it's like, because that was definitely the stereotype. And that's definitely like all the knowledge they had to go on back then, because they weren't exposed to this entire community. Absolutely. And I mean, when you think about Stonewall, the Stonewall riots, which yeah. happened in 1969, you know, gay rights were just in the very, very, very most infantile place, you know, even in New York, in, even in a place like New York City. Yeah, yeah. And on the night of September 13th, 1977, a variety reporter and film critic named Addison Verrill would go out for what was supposed to be just a few drinks with his friends. He went to one of his favorite spots, the Badlands, great movie, mm-hmm. where he was very popular and very well liked. And at that bar the very same night was Paul Bateson on yet one another on yet another one of his benders. And Addison saw Paul from across the bar and offered to buy him a beer, which Paul easily accepted. The two spent the night dancing, drinking together, and a strong attraction began to form. After numerous drinks, the two men decided to stumble their way home to Addison's apartment. And this is where things get a little bit crazy because upon arriving at their apart- at his apartment, they continued to party for a little bit before having sex. And, about- and at about 7.30 a.m., Paul asked Addison for some money, but Addison refused, which greatly upset Paul, saying, quote, I needed money and hated the rejection. I decided to do something I had never done before. Um, Paul would later confess. After the argument, Paul went into the kitchen where he retrieved a frying pan, 
Mm. He hit Addison over the head so hard that he was rendered unconscious. Still unsatisfied, Paul went back to the kitchen where he grabbed, this time, a large kitchen knife from the silverware drawer. As you can imagine, Addison was then stabbed in the chest and stomach numerous times on the floor of his apartment. Paul then took $57 in cash out of Addison's wallet, his passport, credit card, and some clean clothing before fleeing the scene. All this for $57. That's really tragic. Later that day, Addison's body was discovered by a friend, and in the wake of the murder, Addison's close friend, a journalist and gay activist named Arthur Bell. Um, Arthur was outraged by his friend's death, and even more so by the NYPD's lackadaisical response to it. You know, we talked about this last summer when we covered the Marsha P. Johnson case. You know, the initial reaction about Marsha P. Johnson going missing and all that stuff was that, oh, it's just, it's just a quote-unquote drag queen, nothing to worry about. There's right. no, you know... Which right. is like sad. You're you're kind of hearing it unfold here as well. As if those people don't matter. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Arthur decided to take matters into his own hands by writing an article about the crime in the popular newsletter, The Village Voice. Yes. Which was still around until only a few years ago, actually. So it was a very culturally uh, important periodical in which he urged the police to continue their in investigation and begged the community to come forward with any information that they have. Arthur would get exactly what he was asking for, but not in the way that he expected. Eight days after Addison's death, Arthur re received a chilling phone call, and the call would later be tra traced back to Paul Bateson. Um, now, on the phone, he says, quote, I'm a huge fan of your work, uh, he said to Arthur, but I'm not a psychopath, he says. And without giving his name, the man confessed to the crime and told Arthur in great detail what had happened that fateful night. I sort of can't imagine being a reporter and getting kind of this. I know. Open ended piece. You know, this was sort of like very loose terms. That's that show I was telling you guys about on Peacock called based on a true story where like they end up knowing the murderer. So then they like start a podcast yeah. with him. And so you can get this like real insight into what they're like. Yeah. Uh, but uh. you can also kind of tell that if he's going to send a quote or something like oh i'm a big fan of your work like he's becoming obsessed with himself and this totally. is now something more than just like a random killing of somebody well and the and probably the attention or even i think it's also we've we've heard of so many serial killers that have done this the the feeling of power and control that you have over being able to phone up a person directly connected to the case and have a conversation with them and then think you can get away with it you know right. there's some kind of sick psychological a little zodiac killer yeah totally stuff. yeah well he told arthur how impressed he was with how popular addison was and immediately knew he wanted to go home with him mm. immediately i uh, sorry admittedly arthur's initial response was to think this was kind of some sort of sick sure yeah joke however as the caller began giving more details it became clear he had an intimate knowledge of the crime his journalistic instincts kicked in and arthur began taking notes as the caller began to open up more Along with confessing to Addison's murder, he told Arthur that he was responsible for the infamous bag murders, as well as three other unsolved stabbings. Did you stabbings? Did you ever see Catch Me If You Can? I don't think so. With Leonardo DiCaprio, no, I haven't seen Tom it. Hanks. Oh man, you know he's this like kind of famous like um, fraud artist or whatever. But he okay. calls Tom Hanks oh, this right. character who's like the head detective, and it's like he wants recognition. He also just wants like a friend. You know, yeah, it's like kind yeah. of sad. I mean, obviously he didn't kill anybody, but sure. Just, Interesting. Yeah. So 
The caller repeatedly spoke of wanting to atone for his crimes and come clean, but he feared he would lose his license to practice. Now, when asked what type of license, he refused to answer. Arthur said he was sick to his stomach once the phone call ended, and he immediately phoned the police to tell them everything. The homicide department told Arthur that this was the first solid lead that they'd received, and the information given during the call included details that had not been made known to the public in any way, such as the missing credit card and other details about Addison's apartment. They also kind of wonder if no one really saw these guys go home, or did the police just not go into this That's what I was just thinking. Solve it. Like, I can't believe it's like the first real solid lead, at least being like, oh, I saw him leave with, yeah, you know, a five foot seven white dude. Like you'd think you'd kind of give. I know. I don't know. I agree. I agree with you. I was thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Well, detectives were convinced that the killer would call Arthur again. So they decided Smart. to sit at Arthur's apartment and wait. Shortly after 11 p.m., a phone call came in, but it wasn't the original caller. This time, the call came from a man who called himself Mitch. Oh, now, okay. Mitch told Arthur that the man who killed his friend was Paul Bateson. He claimed that Paul and him had met while they were both in rehab earlier that year, and Mitch claimed that earlier that night, Paul had called him and began drunkenly confessing to the murder. Mm, this guy must be the lucky, luckiest reporter in the world, though, you know, like basically solving the crime by just sitting there. He asked if Arthur would meet him in person, but the police advised against it. Paul was arrested shortly after that phone call. Yeah, and when the police arrived at his apartment, he was heavily intoxicated and stumbling. They asked if he knew why he was being arrested, and he responded by pointing to a copy of the Village Voice lying on the table, open to Arthur's article. That night, he gave a detailed handwritten confession, which largely aligned with what Arthur had been told by the mystery caller. Paul was taken into custody and charged with second de- the second-degree murder of Addison Verrill, While he was awaiting his trial, police began to look at the bag murders in a different light and started considering Paul as a serious suspect. I mean, yeah, I absolutely would, too. I mean, look, New York City's big, but there aren't going to be a ton of serial killers, you know, targeting the gay community in the same way that, at least in this one instance, Paul has started to. It'd been long implied that the killer had some sort of medical training and the trash bags used had been traced to NYU Medical Center which of course is Paul's previous place of employment, which we talked about earlier. While Paul was offered a plea deal in which he would confess to the bag murders along with Addison and would be given a shorter sentence, but he refused the deal. During trial, Paul's lawyers pushed for his confession to be dropped. They claimed that Paul had not been read his rights by the arresting officers and that he was too drunk at the time to know what he was talking about, which I will say, you know, given what I know about this time period and as we've touched on the way the New York City police were treating gay people and gay cases, this isn't surprising. Some of these details, you know, like this, this all is sort of par for the course for this time frame. Well, the judge refused this notion and both Paul's confession as well as Arthur's article were both entered as evidence. Excuse me. And on March 5th, 1979, Paul was sentenced to a minimum 20 years in prison. And when William Friedkin heard about the trial and the case surrounding it, he was floored. Now, remember, he's the director of The Exorcist. Right. William couldn't believe that the kind, charming man that he he had met was capable of such horrible crimes. With special permission from Paul's lawyers, William was able to visit him in jail and speak with him, actually. The interview was actually held from the public until just about 12, 10 years ago, uh, excuse me, 11 years ago in 2012. But the details shared would greatly inspire William's next movie, Cruising, starring Al Pacino. 
Interesting. Numerous inmates who served uh, time with Paul in the Arthur Kill Correctional Facility would come forward to tell of how much he loved to brag about his killing and how he had, quote, gotten away with most of them. Paul's sentence ended in 2003, where he was released on a five-year parole, and it's actually unknown if he is still alive today, and his whereabouts are actually a mystery, which is kind of scary if you think about it. The bag murders remain officially unsolved, but Paul remains the top suspect on the list, as you can imagine. So really wild story here today. It's hard to say, you know, 20 years, he got released 20 years ago. Hard to say if he's still out or doing anything. Yeah. And, 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 you know, maybe he did service time and maybe it's different, but kind of crazy how this can be brought into the movie industry in so many ways. And I yeah. Really, yeah, totally. And I'm also curious if they ever collected any DNA. I mean, DNA was in its very extreme infancy at that point, but you know, I'd be running that DNA through CODIS and trying to find out where he is these days, you know? I mean, I do. It's interesting. Gay men and women kind of have this in common, I think, as a general rule. I mean, everyone can kind of, I'm not saying that those are the only two people that get, yeah, you know, get murdered it. or raped or anything, but there is some sort of this vulnerability. And that usually has to do with a lot of men overtaking them and For sure. vulnerable men, drunk men, drunk women, vulnerable women. And it is, it's really scary, you know, and it is, it is kind of, Pause for concern and pause, you know, when you're mm-hmm. going out with a guy or you want to bring him home or something, you know, I, well, there's risk in that. You there's know? a lot of risk. It's very true. Let's talk about that because, you know, like the, the demographics that you mentioned, especially younger gay men, I mean, you know, gay men, there's a little bit more of a hookup culture, you know, you're not sort of looking to get married right away. That's never really been in the, in the gay, or I should say LGBTQ psyche until honestly the last 10 15 years now it is something that you should think about but it never really was before so you know hookup culture in general is more of a thing and young gay people queer people i should say excuse me just young people in general but especially young gay people because you're having to hide your sexuality so you're very much more likely to go to tragically Addison's apartment and run the risk of bringing a complete stranger in for pleasure and ending up murdered. I mean, it's a real thing. So everyone listening, please be very careful. You know, a more common or a more modern kind of take on this, on this case would be like the Craigslist killer, you know, like meeting people online or even the grinder, whatever you want to call them, the grinder killer, where people will get online literally and catfish people and then murder them. I mean, it's the same type of thing. So please, everyone, be very careful, vet as much as you can, verify identity before meeting a public place. Or tell people that you're going place. out. Yeah, yeah. Tell be in a public place or tell people, you know, or or in some sort of way, you know, make sure that you're of the proper mind state. Not that, not that you That's know, true like too. this yeah. happens just because you're drunk, but obviously that adds to vulnerability so for sure for sure let us know what you guys think about this case what you think about the exorcist if you knew this story before <laughs> at carpe darren at jay thrasher and of course shaken and disturbed podcast fans on facebook we'd love to hear from you and specifically our patreon that's right guys yes let's get right into listener shout outs darren i recently told we talked about this at the top of the show you can listen to more about it on nmr i recently told everyone on patreon that their father is a lesbian this is you know connected to today's very gay case um, so I wanted to mention shout out to Susan, Ariana, Louise, and many others who are very entertained by this announcement, Darren, but do you have anything more that you want to say? It is pride month. I am wearing a lot of pride themed shirts and things of, of that nature. Anything you want to comment on 
just thank you for outing me, but thank you for all the happy Father's Day wishes. I really That's appreciate right. it. You made you made a dad feel special. I gotta Aww, say, you made a dad lovely. feel special. I actually posted a video from based on a true story <laughs> premiere in our Facebook group. Okay, yeah. I should clarify what Del Taco is, as our friend Carla seemed confused, and I just figured this would probably be the best one to kind of highlight, <laughs> like the things I was asking on the carpet. Sure, Del Taco is. And I can't really say if this is all out west. I just know it exists. In I California. feel like it is. I'm yeah. sure it does. It does not exist on the East in, Coast. On the East Coast, I don't believe. I've never seen a Del Taco anywhere on the East Del Coast. Del Taco is like, and I had this conversation with Nadine last night. Is <laughs> like Taco Bell, right? Yeah. But on the West Coast, it's like the equivalent. Like it's the say, same yeah. type of like same type of vibe, same type of stuff. Yep. And we were passing a Taco Bell yesterday and I was like, Nadine, that's our restaurant. And she was, I was like, just because I'm moving to LA for you doesn't mean we're going to get late night Del Taco. And she was like, oh, she goes, Taco Bell all the way, oh, not Del Taco. Interesting. So when Kaylee Cuoco bought everyone Del Taco <laughs> on the set, I mean, to be honest, yeah, throw it out. Yeah, I mean, why why would you eat that stuff? Listen, I, eat I've that been crap. <laughs> I've been to a Del Taco once. I actually liked it. It was fine. It, fine. I don't know that I would, listen, if I were to pick Taco Bell or Del Taco, it's going to be Taco Bell each and every time. I'm just going to put that out there. But, you know, my good friend Carla seemed a little confused, Darren. So I appreciate you taking the time to really kind of explain what that is. Also, you guys should go watch that video that Darren posted in our Facebook group. Um, She's looking very beautiful and she's talking to, by the way, the man you were talking to. Oh, I know you just texted me. You just, you were like, I was like, can you? Gorgeous. I was like, he's been in some other stuff though, so I was like, yeah, I, it, I, I'm a, I'm his biggest fan. I'm getting. Into I know, him. Yeah. I know. I'm gonna set him up for you. Listen, I listen. I I want to make a really inappropriate joke about not eating Taco Bell and 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 maybe Nathan's hot dogs and, and maybe meeting that guy somewhere for a date. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, daddy. So there's that. Okay. There's that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, you guys join us on Patreon where all this stuff is going down. Will I have an announcement soon? Maybe, maybe Darren's got an announcement about me that she's brewing up in her head. Um, you can get all of this stuff, bonus footage, bonus content, including ad-free episodes of this podcast right here in video form. That's right. You can see every single full episode for the last several months uh, right now on Patreon if you're interested. And if you're a former Patreon subscriber, come on come on back. back. We recently updated our perks you. and tiers. You can now see our faces. You can see us do things like this. I mean, they're pretty, they're good. We got a lot of the hand motions going on, like robots. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. and it all really, really works. So come on back. And of course, we need to thank uh, the producer of today's amazing episode, Megan. By the way, Megan really did a great job this week. I really, she I really, really liked did. this I, episode. And I love Megan. Yeah, yeah I, love I Megan. do too. So let's give her some love. One, two, three. Thanks, Thanks Megan. Megan. And love we will ya. see you guys next week. Check your freshies, Darren. Check are we your still... bake pads without pants, and you don't need a penis. Oh, God. All right. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.